All right, well, let's get right into our passage today in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Matthew 5, 38. We are doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount that we're calling the Upside Down Kingdom because a lot of the things that Jesus says really go against the grain of some of our sinful kind of intuitions, our sinful inclinations. And uh, so today is another one of those teachings that's going to kind of may rub you a little bit the wrong way. And so hopefully I can show you why it makes sense and help you to trust in Christ a little bit more today. So Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now this passage is very personal for me because I grew up in a Mennonite home. And some of you may not know what the Mennonites are. They're kind of similar to Amish people. And uh, so you got, at least when my mom was young, she used to wear the bun in her hair and the dress. And by the time I, I was born, they, they dressed a little more normally. But one of, the, one of the key attributes of, yeah, I didn't wear like suspenders or anything. But uh, one of the key attributes of, of Mennonites, one of their key beliefs is pacifism. This idea that we should never resist, we should never fight back. And so Mennonites will not, they will not go to war, they will not be on a police force, they, many of them will not be in any sort of civil government position because of this verse. And so in college, when I went to, to school to study Christian ministry, and I really wrestled with this because I said, ah, is this really what the Bible is teaching? Absolute pacifism. And I studied passages like this, and at the end of the day, I felt like, no, I don't think this is what the Bible is teaching, absolute pacifism. And, and the reason we're going to see in verse 38 is that I don't think Jesus is directly, is directly referring to warfare. Now, this, this original command that God gave, eye for eye for tooth for tooth, that Jesus quotes, comes out of the Old Testament's. So Jesus is not just referring to something that the rabbis said. He's referring to what God said in the Old Testament, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And so it seems like maybe... At, at first, kind of first glance, it seems like maybe Jesus is contradicting God, which would be a problem, right? Because they're supposed to be the same. So that would, that would be kind of an issue. Uh, but I don't think that is the case. And to understand why God originally gave this command, we need to understand the original context in which it, was, in which it came. The ancient Middle Eastern world was a world filled with tribal warfare, tribal feuds. Tribes were constantly fighting and getting revenge against each other. Uh, in this culture, if somebody harmed you, if they insulted you, or if they harmed your family, or if they harmed your tribe, it was it, your honor depended on retaliating with greater or equal force. Otherwise, you would appear weak and you would be shamed, and then people would try to take advantage of you. They would think, hey, this person, they can't stick up for themselves. Let's take advantage of them. Or this tribe can't defend themselves. Let's take advantage of them. And so you can see how the ante was always being upped, right? Because you get in an argument with somebody, and, and they insult you. They, say, they, they call you a name, they call you a fool or something, or, or a Clipper fan, or something that really gets, your, gets, gets you agitated. 
And so you respond by, by, by insulting them in a greater way, either uh, two ways that you could really insult somebody. You could spit in their face. That would be a huge insult. Or you could, you could slap them. And so you slap them. You're like, yeah, I'll, I'll teach you to call me a Clipper fan. And, and that, so you slap them. But now, now they need to retaliate. Otherwise, they look weak and they are shamed. And so they, they get upset. And now they punch you. And they knock out your tooth. So now you've got to get back. So now you attack them and you're fighting and you break their arm. You're like, I taught you a lesson. But that person goes back and once their arm gets better, they plot how they can get back at you. And so they, when you're not expecting it, they kill you. But now your family is ticked off at them and your family has lost face because they can't just let somebody from another tribe kill one of their own. And so they attack that tribe. And so it's just this constant warfare, back and forth, never ending. And we still see that today. I, I think a lot of the conflicts that we see in the Middle East are from this old tribal, feudal society. Uh, I, don't, I don't think they all just go back to politics or religion. I think a lot of it is just these different tribes that have been feuding for, for millennium. And so it's in this context then that God gave the Israelites some rules to regulate justice because he did not want his people acting that way. He did not want his people behaving that way. And so one of the first principles that he gave to his people was that justice comes from an impartial court. Justice comes from an impartial court, a legal court, a civil court. And it comes on the basis of witnesses and evidence. Now, if somebody is attacking you, if somebody's attacking your family, you can defend yourself. I think that's biblical, a biblical principle. You can defend yourself. In fact, I would say if you are a male, it is incumbent on you. It is your responsibility to protect your family. Absolutely. However, once the attack is done, once the crime has been committed, now it is no longer in your hands. Now it is in the hands of the civil authorities. You no longer have the right to somehow try to now go out and inflict justice on that other person. The crime has been committed. Now it's in the hands of the government. And so the case goes to the court, and the court will decide the verdict and the punishment, not you. So if you're a farmer in and, and this society and somebody st- you think that your neighbor stole one of your cows, then you don't just go over and steal one of his and like, hey, we're even now. No, you've got to report him to the civil authorities and they will decide what happens. If somebody gets angry with his neighbor and the neighbor punches him and knocks out his tooth, the court can punish... Let me go back to guys. I just missed my second point. I apologize. I make mistakes sometimes. Second principle here that we see is that punishment must fit the crime. Okay, that's in the, the second principle we see in the Old Testament. That's really what this command is referring to. That punishment must fit the crime. So if you and your neighbor get into disputes and the neighbor knocks out your tooth, you can take him, you can report him, and the court can, can try him. And if they find him guilty for knocking out your tooth, they can punish him. They can either knock out his tooth or they can punish him with a, a fine. With a, and make him pay something that they feel like is equivalent to getting a tooth knocked out. But the court cannot punish him by cutting off his hand or cutting off his head, right? It has to, the punishment has to fit the crime. I hope you see the wisdom of these rules. Because by taking justice out of the hands of private citizens and by making punishment equal, these rules stopped the escalation of tribal feuds. You can't just keep retaliating because the government says, okay, it's done. You've committed this crime. This is how we're going to punish you. And it's the basis for our legal system today. However, the problem with this, as we all know, is that our human desire for vengeance is so strong that we still want to take justice in our own hands. 
We still want to get revenge. We often don't feel like it's enough to just leave it in the hands of the courts. We want to do something about it. And in Jesus' day, that had become part of the religious tradition. And so a lot, of his, a lot of the rabbis were saying, look, if your enemy does something to you, you do not have to go to the court. You can retaliate. You can take this principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and you can do that to your enemy. Just don't, just don't hurt him worse than he has hurt you. And of course, that's very subjective, right? I mean, if somebody really insults me, I may think that they deserve to die for how badly they've insulted me. And so I think that, then, is what Jesus is critiquing in this passage. I don't think he's refuting the Old Testament. I don't believe that he's saying that Christians cannot serve as police officers or serve in the military. I don't think he's saying that the government can't arrest and prosecute criminals. He's not forbidding justice. Okay, Jesus is on his way to the cross to uphold justice. That's his mission, to uphold justice, to take the punishment for the sins of those who trust in him. But his point here is that the lifestyle, a lifestyle of personal retribution, of an eye for an eye where somebody, somebody hurts you and so you're going to retaliate for the wrongs done against you, or, or a tit for a tat, where you only give to somebody what they can reciprocate back to you. Jesus is saying that mentality is incompatible with the lifestyle of his disciples. His disciples will respond with a different attitude. That is not how they're going to act. And he gives four examples of what this could look like. The first example is in verse 39. Jesus says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this is often read as forbidding self-defense. As Jesus is saying, hey, if somebody attacks you, just, just let him keep attacking you. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. The word strike in the Greek does not refer to a physical assault, to physical punching. It refers to a backhanded slap across the face. So if you're in an argument and you're, it's getting heated and, and you call somebody a name, the way that they can really insult you, the, the biggest insult in this, in this culture would be they can just backhand you across the face. And it's not really going to hurt you that badly, but it's going to hurt your pride big time in this society. It's going to make you, it's going to be seriously shameful. And so Jesus is saying that when his disciples are insulted in the worst possible way, they're not even going to worry about getting even. They're not going to worry about insulting back. The insult will be so unimportant to them that they'll even let the person insult them repeatedly, over and over. If you slap me on the right cheek, sure, slap me again. It doesn't bother me. And that sounds pretty lame to us as Americans. Let's just be honest. That sounds really lame, okay? Now, some of you are probably, you were probably feeling pretty good when I explained that Jesus does not pr prohibit us from having self-defense. You probably thought, okay, that's good. I, I want to defend myself. But now you're saying, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got to let somebody insult me? I mean, we, we, we've grown up with heroes who, who don't take crap from anybody. I mean, those are our heroes in, in movies. I remember when, when I was, I don't know, I was like 12 or 13, I watched, uh, uh, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, right? And so people mess with him and they mess with his friends so he goes into town and he, you know, you know shoots like 21 people. And I'm like, wow, what a man! Real man! And a few years later, I saw a movie called uh, Man on Fire by Denzel Washington. Again, people mess with his friends and so he just goes off and kills a whole bunch of them. Or even the, uh, you know, Vin Diesel's The Fast and Furious movies where people, you know, Vin Diesel, his character is pretty, pretty chill, in those movies, but if you mess with him, if you mess with his family, 
He's not going to take crap from you. He's going to teach you a lesson. And we like that. We're like, yeah, we like to imagine ourselves as those kind of people, right? If you, if you mess with me, I'm going to embarrass you. I'm going to, I'm going to you know, if, you, if you insult me, man, I'm going, to, I'm going to say something to you that just, I'm going to give you a zinger that just puts you right in your place and people are going to laugh at you and you're going to, you're going to feel really stupid for messing with me. We like to imagine ourselves that way. At least I do. Maybe I'm the only sinner here. <laughs> but the reality, the unfortunate, the sad reality, is that we rarely do that to people we don't know. Very rarely do we actually do that to someone we don't know. Instead, we tend to do that to our own friends and family. Those are the people that we do our zingers and our, our verbal, verbal counter-assaults on. There's no quicker way to destroy a marriage or ruin a friendship or drive a wedge between you and your children than to have the mentality of an eye for an eye. Boy, that'll do it. If you lash out whenever your friend says something to you or your spouse says something to you or your children say something to you that you think could be construed as insulting or disrespectful or unloving, if every time you hear that and you lash back out, you will eventually end up bitter and alone and and, and angry at the world when the only thing that's really been hurt is your own pride. And I see a lot of people that way. And I don't want to end up that way. And so Jesus says that if you find your identity in God as his son, as his daughter, if you find your identity in me, Jesus says, as as my disciple, then you will not get offended over how people view you. The more you look to God for your identity and your validation, the less you're going to care what other people think of you. If the God of the universe loves you, then who cares what some other tiny, finite human thinks? It's just going to get harder and harder to be insulted. Things won't bother you anymore. Second example Jesus gives of how his disciples will respond differently is in verse 40. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now the tunic in this culture was a long uh, dress-like garment. Guys wore dresses back then. So it's just the way it was. Long dress-like garment. And it was a nice outfit. It was something that you would wear, you know, if you want to look nice. Not if you're working out in the fields, but if you're at a social event. And so the idea here is that somehow you've ruined another person's tunic. Think, think you've ruined someone's expensive suit or nice dress. Maybe you spilled coffee on it. And now that person, they're angry because you ruined their good outfit and they're suing you to make you buy them a new one. Get them a new one. And since you don't have enough money to buy them a new one, if you lose the case, you'll have to give up your own tunic, your own outfit to replace theirs. And that sounds kind of silly to us, you know, have a lawsuit over clothes. But in this culture, clothes were very expensive and most people were very poor. And so most people only owned one or two nice outfits. And so, you know, to give up your nice outfit, you might not have any more nice outfits. And Jesus says, in this situation, his disciples, this is, gonna, this is kind of crazy, he says, in this situation, his disciples will not just give up their outfits willingly, they'll throw in their underwear as well. That's what a cloak is, an undergarment. Now, I think this is probably hyperbole. In fact, I'm almost sure of it. Uh, I don't think anyone in this culture or our culture today would expect you to literally strip down and, and give them all your clothes and run home naked. But I think that Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. He's saying that instead of becoming angry and bitter over the unfair loss of material goods, 
His disciples will respond with joyful generosity. They know that they don't own anything. Everything they have has been loaned to them by God. And so if they need to pass on some of those possessions to other people, then so be it. So be it. It's just a good reminder to trust God to provide for all their needs. Jesus' third example of how his disciples react differently is in verse 41. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Most of you know the Jews at this time are under the authority of the Roman government. And so Roman soldiers had the right to press to press civilians into service and make them carry their bags for one mile. And that seemed very unfair to the Jewish people. It may not seem like a big deal to us today, but these people, most of them are desperately poor and they're working very hard just to survive. And most of these people are farmers or they're small businessmen. And so their time and their energy is valuable. They don't have like lots of excess time where they're just kind of sitting around hanging out. They're working hard. And so for a Roman soldier to come up to you in the middle of your work and say, hey, Close up your shop. you got to carry my bag for a mile. That was really inconvenient. That, that, that was valuable time and energy that you need to survive. And so people were very, they, they really resented this. And yet Jesus says, hey, rather than becoming angry and bitter over unfair demands made on your time and your energy, he says, my disciples are going to be generous. They're going to go beyond what is asked of them, even if it seems unfair. If they're asked to go a mile, they'll go too. God they know that God will give them the energy they need. And God, they know that if they trust God, He will enable them to get everything done that they need to get done. Maybe not everything that they want to get done, but everything that they need to get done, God will give them the energy and the time to do it. They trust Him in that way. Now, I do want to issue a word of caution here. Uh, I think sometimes, I know, sometimes people try to place demands on us that are not just inconvenient, they're actually destructive and harmful. They're abusive. And so it's important to remember that Jesus tells us to carry the pack two miles, not a hundred miles. Okay. It's appropriate to joyfully accept some extra work that your spouse or your spouse or your parent or your teacher asks you to do, even though you're already busy and tired, and to do it with a joyful attitude. Do it unto Christ to please Christ. That is appropriate and it is good. But it is not appropriate to accept destructive physical, emotional, or spiritual abuse from another person. I think the only exception to that is the abuse, the, the persecution that we will take when we share the gospel. That's, that comes from sharing the gospel. Jesus says to expect it. But otherwise, it's not appropriate. And so sometimes it's gray. We're not sure. Is this abusive or is this something that I should accept? And so we need to ask the Holy Spirit. I can't always just give you a, a hard standard for when it's abusive and when it's not, but we need to ask the Holy Spirit for discernment. Is this abuse? Does this cross a line? Do I need to establish some boundaries? And let God speak to you in that. Finally, Jesus' last example is in verse 42. He says, Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, this verse has uh, created much guilt in me over the years. As I have traveled to poor countries, I've gone on a lot of mission trips. And so it's, it's very common to be in these countries and to be surrounded by these poor beggars. 
And some of them, your heart just goes out to them, little children, they're beggars. And, and, and so you, I, I often I'll remember this verse, and I'm like, okay, I need to give them my money. But then it's like, if I give them my money, I'm not going to have any money. Like, I'm, I'm literally going to go broke because I'm surrounded by like 20 kids asking me for money. And every day there's beggars who are coming. And so I've had to, to, to deal with that. I've had to ask myself, what is Jesus actually saying in this verse, and what is he not saying? He says, give to the one who asks you. But he doesn't say give money to the one who asks. He says, turn, do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. But he doesn't say you must give the person what he wants to borrow from you. Now, to some of you, you're like, whoa, hey, man, you're trying to like avoid or circumvent Jesus' point here. But I don't think so. I think I'm actually getting at his points. Jesus is saying that his disciples are sacrificially generous. Okay, rather than having this tit-for-tat mentality where, where you only help somebody if they can help you in some way, we're called to help everyone, everyone who asks us. But that doesn't always mean giving them money, especially if it wouldn't be helpful to them, especially if it would harm them. And there are two illustrations of this in Scripture. One is in Acts where Peter and John are going up to the temple to, to worship God. And as they're going up to the temple on the steps, this crippled man begins to ask them for money. And so they respond and they say, hey, silver and gold we don't have. And I don't know if that literally means, hey, we, we literally have no money on us or we just don't have any available money to give you. I'm not, I don't know for sure. They say, we don't have any money to give, but what we have we will give you. And they pray for him and he's healed. So what did they do? They obeyed Jesus. They did not turn away from this man. When this man said, hey, help me, they didn't just turn their back on him and keep going. They looked at him. They responded to him. They made him important to them. And they prayed for him. They gave him what they had, which was, which was God's blessing. And he was healed. Another example of this is in uh, 2 Thessalonians. The Thessalonian church uh, had, had kind of this strange issue where some people in the church had decided that, hey, we don't need to work anymore. We can just kind of hang out, and we're in this community of brothers and sisters in Christ, and so our, our Christian brothers and sisters are going to take care of us. We don't need to work. Uh, they're going to feed us. They're going to give us money if we need it. They'll pay our bills. This is great. And so Paul responds by writing in Second Thessalonians, he says, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. That sounds kind of harsh. But Paul is giving something here. He's giving some very good advice. In other words, if a lazy person comes to you asking for money and you know that they're not trying to better themselves, perhaps the best thing to give in that situation would be some good advice, some loving advice about the value of hard work. Now, I'm not trying to say, don't, don't mishear me here, I'm not trying to say that most pe- poor people are lazy, far from it, but these examples show that giving money is not always the best way to help somebody. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we ought to give people the money they ask, but not always. It's not always the best way. In fact, most people who work with homeless say that it is not actually helpful to give them money directly. It only, often only just exacerbates the problems they're already in. Instead, if we want to be truly helpful, we can, we can support, financially support homeless organizations that feed and clothe and, and help the homeless to find jobs and give them job skills and even pay for their laundry, like Laundry Love. Those are good organizations to support. In summary, Jesus, in this passage, he calls his disciples to find their identity in him, 
not in how people treat them. Okay, if, if you find your identity, your sense of self-worth, from how people treat you, it'll always be going up and down. Up and down. And you're going to take insults very, very personally because they're going to make you feel like a loser, like you actually are a loser. But if you find your self-worth in how Jesus views you, then it will not change. It will hold. It will be consistent. And it will not be affected by the things people say about you, even if they are negative. And if you allow the Spirit of God to help you follow the commands of Jesus, you will radiate God's love and His peace and His generosity to a world filled with pride and sinfulness where it is all about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And when you do that, eventually, people are going to be naturally drawn to Christ through your example. They're going to see you and they're going to be drawn to Christ by how differently you relate to people and how differently you seem to think even about yourself. And that then will become an opportunity and a basis for sharing the good news with them. Let's pray.